into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everyone. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode 10 of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. If you've listened before, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you're new, welcome aboard. I do have just one uh, quick housekeeping note before we get started. My podcast has been in iTunes and SoundCloud for a while, but it's finally up on Stitcher and Google Play Music. Uh, This is probably not big headline news. I think any podcast in 2016 ought to be in all those places. But if you're new and want to go back and check out some old episodes, uh, it should be really easy to find. Uh, Just search Mitch Goldish Podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. I've got some good old episodes back in the feed. Jeff Perlman, who just put out a new book and talked to me all about it back when it was just an idea. Will Leach, Jason Stark, plenty of other interesting people. And today I've got another one that I'm really excited about. I'm actually breaking one of my rules. When I first started a podcast on my personal site, I said that I wasn't going to have any coworkers on uh, for a few reasons. And I'm finally breaking that rule. It took me 10 episodes. But I think uh, today's guest was just too interesting. And I was too excited to have him on. So uh, happy to welcome in SI's legal analyst, Michael McCann. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great, Mitch, and I'm happy to be the first SI person on the show. That's an honor. <laughs> yes, well, thanks. It was. Uh, I I knew I figured I'd break that rule at some point. I don't even know why I had it, but uh, but uh, you know, I just decided to to reach out and make the ask, and you said yes, and it was just kind of a no brainer. And uh, I I read through. Uh, I actually learned about you some things just reading your bio. I, you know, we've only met in person a couple of times. We've interacted more on like email and Twitter and stuff, but even just inviting you on, I. I was doing my prep work, and I, I came across some, some fun facts and things about your career. So I, uh, I'm even more excited now than when I asked you. I think this will be a lot of fun. Excellent. No, I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate <laughs> you having me on. Sure. Um, so I guess the first thing, and this is uh, you know a pretty normal place to, to start, but your career path. So for those who don't know, you are a professor of law at the University of New Hampshire uh, law school, and you're also uh, you're a lawyer. You've had a, a great reporting career. You do a ton of analysis for Sports Illustrated. But I'm curious, just your career path, how you got to where you are, and even uh, you know wh- you do a lot of different things. What were your goals, and you know what did you think you'd be doing, and how did you get to the place where you're uh, sort of doing all these different things? So when I went to law school, I think my expectation was that I would go to law school, become an attorney probably at a Boston law firm, which is where I'm from, and or maybe work in public interest, either for a district attorney's office, perhaps uh, the Justice Department, something along those lines. And when I was in law school, there was a sports law journal, and I joined that. And it got me very interested in, in how sports, which I'm passionate about, connects to the law. And while I was on the journal, I became its editor-in-chief. And my real break into sports law was back in 2001 when it was between when I'd be a second and third year law student. I was at a Boston law firm and it was in June and the NBA draft was on. And I'm a big NBA draft junkie. And that's because I'm a Celtics fan. And you remember the Celtics were great in the 80s and then the 90s came and they were awful. And as you know, Mitch, with the NBA, with a lot of leagues, 
your your team is rewarded by being bad through the I'm, draft. I'm a Sixers right? fan, so I'm well aware that your team is rewarded through the draft for being bad. <laughs> you, you, you know you trust the process. <laughs> I do. And you've got it down, you know, perfectly. So this the Celtics were awful in the 90s. So I was really knowledgeable about the draft just during the because that was the big night. If you're a Celtics fan, was draft night. That was like the only good night. So I remember watching the NBA draft on TV, and Dick Vitale said, "It's a big mistake. These kids are skipping college for the NBA." And I thought, you know, I don't think that's actually true. One is that they're not kids; they're they're men. But but beyond that. I didn't think that the data backed that up. If you looked at players who had made the jump from high school to the NBA, my intuition was that not many players had tried it, and the ones that did tended to do really well. And that sparked in my mind, I wonder if the NBA will force this issue, and could that raise legal issues? And I ended up writing a paper on it for a sports law class. I looked at players who had made the jump from high school to the NBA, uh, obviously Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, Kevin Garnett, but I also looked at the players that tried and failed, and I found that on balance, the players that had made the jump were actually statistically the best group of players in the NBA, even counting as zero the players that didn't make it. And I thought, well, maybe this assumption that players need to go to college isn't actually true. And then I looked at players who had been arrested in the NBA. I thought because David Stern, the commissioner at the time, talked about more life experience for players would be helpful. So I did a study, a 15-year age cohort, I looked at Players would have been arrested in the NBA over 15 years. And I thought, well, if the NBA is right, then players who had gone to college and maybe graduated would be less likely to get in trouble with the law. But the data didn't bear that out at all. So I wrote this big paper, and then I had an accompanying study, and it was published in a law review. And I that was it. My brother read it. My mother said she read the article. I don't think she did. Uh, you know, law, law review articles just aren't really read. And I went to practice law in Boston, and then a couple years after that, Maurice Claret, the football player at Ohio State, sued the NFL over the topic that I wrote about, the, the legality of age restrictions. And his lawyer, Alan Milstein, invited me to join the legal team. He had said, you know, I was, I was the only one who had written about this topic, and he thought I was knowledgeable, and I joined the Claret legal team. So, and then from there, Things took off. We ultimately lost that case, but it was really my my entry point into sports law. So I always tell my students, I, I said, look, I wasn't some great athlete. I wasn't some charismatic agent. I just wrote a paper. I was passionate about maybe an obscure topic, the, the legality of age restrictions in the NBA, but I wrote about it. I cared about it, and it was my way into the industry. So that's really how I got into it, Mitch. It wasn't, it wasn't some grand plan. I didn't go to law school thinking I'd go into sports law. I just thought it was more fun than a, an actual career. But uh, since that time, sports law has taken off. There are a lot more opportunities for jobs in sports law, particularly at the college level. So uh, that was my, my entry point. Yeah, well, that, uh, that's funny you brought up Maurice Claret because that was number one on the list. When I hinted earlier that I was learning things about you from reading the bio, I had no idea that you were part of his counsel. And, uh, and, and I was actually, I was going to bring that up at the, at the end, but, uh, now that, you know, who cares about the order that I had planned? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just curious, what was, uh, what was that experience like? Cause I, you know, that was such a high profile case. And I, you know, I remember, uh, following that, it was obviously very different following the news back in what, 2002 or three or whenever that was. 
Um, but what was that like, uh, jumping from, uh, you know, being a younger lawyer who's written this paper and then all of a sudden you're attached to such a high profile case? Yeah, it was really, um, it was something I never could have foreseen and it required me to really get, get my skill set down fast where this, the stakes in this case were high. It was a case covered by the media, obviously. And like you mentioned, very different coverage given this was pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-social media. There was the internet, but it just wasn't, obviously things were very different back then. It was much more of a, there were websites and there were newspapers, but none of what generates so much sports content today was in play at the time. But I had a great opportunity to focus on sort of a set of issues, antitrust issues, and I reported to Alan Milstein. I would do some analysis. I would send it to him. So I got to be in a case that was was covered on ESPN all the time, and uh, it was exciting, to be honest. It was really something that I never could have planned. But And, and to be honest, losing the case, I think, w- was a huge letdown because I was so – professionally, emotionally invested in this case to ultimately come up short, uh, it took some time to bounce back from that, to be honest, because it was a decision that I, I don't think was correct. I still don't think was correct. And I wish we could relitigate that case, to be honest, because I think we might win it with a different set of judges, maybe in, in a different jurisdiction. So it, it really required a maturity, required me to become quickly mature as a lawyer. And that's healthy. I mean, that, that's a there's no better way of becoming seasoned, if you will, than getting that seasoning live in action. And uh, I, I was in court when Alan Milstein delivered the arguments in the Second Circuit. I remember him being interrupted almost immediately by the judges who were very skeptical of his arguments. Uh, it, it was really a, a fascinating experience that uh, that uh, I'll never forget. So. Ben Simmons was the consensus best player in high school basketball uh, and then went to LSU and everyone on earth knew he was going to go to LSU for one year and then go right to the NBA and then ended up being drafted by the Sixers number one overall. With everything you have going on, if Ben Simmons had come to you a year or two ago and said, hey, I want to challenge the NBA's age limit and I don't want to have to play for a year in college while I want to go pro now, will you represent me in court? Is that something you would have taken on, do you think? Well, I'd have to clear it with our bosses, so <laughs> we we have that threshold, right? So we have the the I have you know, I'm in a different position now, 12, 13 years later. Yeah. As, as a journalist, right, uh, having an academic position as well, I I might at least explore it, but I'd want to first clear it with our our bosses. But um, if assuming I wanted to do it and we got past the 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 sort of boss threshold, then I would tell him, one, I think an NBA player is in a different position because you can go to Europe, you can go to China, you can go to Israel, you can go to South America and make good money playing pro basketball while you wait out the age restriction. We saw Brendan Jennings do that. We saw Emmanuel Mude do it. Uh, We saw other players try it. Jeremy Taylor didn't work out so well for him, but it is an option that a football player doesn't have is that you can go do very well, play for a team in another country. You can sign an endorsement deal. I would tell him, think first about that as an option, that before you go bring a case, I would say, think about this. I know it's not necessarily as good as playing in the NBA, but 
there's a, that whole other avenue that, that really wasn't in play to the same degree back when we brought the Claret case. And obviously with Claret, with a football player, there there is no other option. So I would tell him that. And I will also say if that isn't good enough, I, I would tell him, you know, you bring a case like this, you become a villain. You become somebody who threatens the system. You become someone who is a destabilizer, is a disruptor. And there are a lot of people that don't like change. There are a lot of people who might be sympathetic to you, but are big college basketball fans that kind of like you going to college for a year. You know, I think of, I have an older brother, Bill. He's three years older than me. He is the biggest Georgetown basketball fan alive. He goes to all the games. He sometimes travels with the team. He's totally invested in Georgetown basketball, the, the program. And I remember he, he's telling me, oh, you know, I, why, why are you telling them to skip college? They should go to college. I like, I enjoy college basketball. So I think there are a lot of people that would don't like these types of cases, Mitch. So I would tell them if Europe or China, et cetera, isn't good enough for a year and you're still comfortable bringing the case, I would say don't bring it in New York because we lost that case with Claret. And that's now the second circuit where Tom Brady lost as well. I would tell him that there are other federal circuits that likely would have more favorable precedent. The Ninth Circuit out in California, potentially the Eighth Circuit, Midwest has better precedent. So uh, I would tell him those things. There's a lot, a lot of checks for him before he brings that case. Yeah, and I guess another difference between basketball and football is he'd probably spend longer in court than his year at LSU. Uh, Right. You know, football, they have to wait a few years before they can turn pro, and uh, and it might not even save him any time to try and fight the system. He might be better off just waiting it out, playing a year of college ball, and then turning pro. Yeah, he could he could seek an injunction, but you're right. I mean, it's it's a longer – one year isn't a big deal, probably. And I tell you this, if the NBA – and it doesn't sound like they're going to, but if they were seeking to raise the age limit to 20 in two years out of high school – I think that does change the calculus a little bit. Certainly, I could see more players going abroad rather than going to college. But secondly, I could see uh, some enterprising lawyers talking more aggressively with potential players about bringing a case. All right. Well, that's interesting. And I did, did not know we were going to go on that tangent, but, uh, but that, was, <laughs> that was good. So back to your career. Uh, and I know from uh, from this and from reading, it sounds like antitrust is one of your areas of expertise. But to me, one of the things that's so impressive about your work at SI, and I promise I won't uh, blow smoke the entire podcast <laughs> with compliments, but uh, it's unbelievable how you just write about everything, and it's like any any time something goes on that's uh, that touches the legal realm, it's like oh McCann's gonna file on it, we'll we'll have that out. Um, and like I remember uh, during all the and because I was I had my Olympics podcast, and so I was following all the Lochte stuff probably closer than I would have liked to, but I just remember reading one of your pieces and some news broke and then you filed a story really shortly after that mentioned the extradition laws between the US and Brazil and I was just like how does he know that <laughs> like sports is so big and I was like you know how much stuff do you just know and how much do you have to look up um so you know what is what is that process like for you like do you have uh some area that's kind of your your wheelhouse and expertise and how much of this is in in real time you're looking things up and and figuring things out uh, before you you write it out and, and file it in your story. So I, I think you know my wheelhouse is antitrust law and, and labor law uh, would be the areas that I've practiced in the areas that uh, I'm probably most knowledgeable about. Beyond that, something like an extradition treaty, 
I think knowing that something like that exists is the key because then it's easy to look up, right? It's easy to, to go on the State Department website and, and figure out what exactly is the law and, and look at decisions that have implemented the law. I, I think for me, it's having a baseline knowledge of the different areas of law that are in play, taking a sports story and saying, okay, here are the relevant areas of law and I'm going to need to to look into what is the extradition treaty between the United States and a specific country? You know, I'm not going to know that off the top of my head. I'm not, I'm not you know, I don't know the US, U.S. extradition treaties with uh, all of the different countries across the world. Or yeah, they have I, I thought stuff. you might. So that answers that question. That's, <laughs> I wish been, I did. I've been wanting to ask you this question since the summer, and I was, I guess, saving <laughs> it for now. Now I know you do look things up. Okay. I do. But, you know, I, I have to know that the key, the key part of that story is that there is an extradition treaty. Right. That that's the key is knowing that that's the relevant area of law, because once you know the relevant area of law, it's it's easy really to figure out what are the specifics of the law or, or take another story. It doesn't have to be international. If an athlete is arrested in Alabama, I'm not a lawyer in Alabama. I'm not licensed to practice in Alabama, but I'll know what air, how to find the relevant area. I'll know what the relevant area of law is in Alabama and then I'll be able to look it up. So. Knowing the knowing what law applies to me is like 90 percent of the battle. Mm -hmm. So then how do you decide which uh, cases or stories you want to either write about or cover more closely? I know, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much of them, but I know at least some of the Brady hearings you were in the room and actually went to the courthouse. How do you sort of pick and choose? Is it based mostly on geography and what's close to you or based on name recognition, but how do you kind of decide which ones you're going to totally throw yourself in and, and cover fully and which ones you might just uh, file a file a quick story or sort of an explainer piece for us? You know, I think a lot of it is having good communication with the different department editors. So, you know, with an NFL story, being able to reach out to Melissa Jacobs, just as an example, talking to Melissa about how important this story is from a newsworthy standpoint and allocating the right appropriate amount of time. So, you know, take daily fantasy sports, right? This was a topic that was huge last year, but I think has kind of fallen off the radar. I think maybe people got sick of it, to be honest, on some level. So making sure that I'm spending my time on storylines that are good additions to the SI and SI platforms, making sure that they're not, I'm not spending a ton of time talking about an obscure topic that you know, might be of interest to a small group of people in, in one part of the country, but really isn't of general application. So with Deflategate, I felt like it had a lot of good things going for it. Obviously, it had Tom Brady, so it's very marketable. It has the Patriots. People love or hate the hate Patriots. It has a bizarre set of facts that, that neutral scientists have said have been wrongly determined by the NFL. And then it, of course, had court hearings. And and I, and you mentioned geography. Yeah, something happening in New York is a lot easier for me to go to than something happening in California. But it, I went to the Ed O'Bannon trial in Oakland, California. Uh, so I, I I will go even if it's you know, not re readily convenient, like something in the Northeast. But uh, but I think a lot of it, Mitch, is just talking closely with SI editors to make sure that. It's a good use of, of time. It's it, that it's a it's interesting and it's of relevance to readers, and uh, having that open line of communication, I think, is key. 
And how tough is it for you to balance the work of writing and reporting with also being a professor and having your class schedule and maybe, uh, you know, you've you've got class uh, at like the worst possible time or the day that, you know, news is going to break. Is that is that tough for you to balance? How many days a week are you teaching? I actually don't know that. So I I'm able to teach one day a week. I get all my classes in one day, but I do have administ- I have pretty substantial administrative duties. I'm I'm chair of our hiring committee. And I'm co-chair of our dean selection committee. So I have a I have a healthy amount of administrative work in addition to teaching. But and I also direct the sports law and entertainment law institute. So I'm only teaching one day a week. But there are other days where I have uh, various meetings. But, you know, when, when things come up and if I'm in class, usually if it's a long class, for instance, this semester, I teach a three hour class on Deflategate. I have two breaks during the class. I will check my phone if something is broken. I'm sure I'm able to communicate with an SI editor. I can say, look, when my class is over, I'll immediately tackle this. Uh, usually, though, I'm, I'm available, which I think is is important. Being in an academic position gives me the flexibility most of the time to be able to react quickly to a story. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's I do have other duties, like, like you mentioned. But a lot of the duties, I think, are complementary. So, Teaching sports law, it's, it's largely what I write about for SI to, to, you know, to a certain degree. So I, I'm able to teach more effectively because I'm so up to date with what's going on in the sports world. So I, I think often they're, they're sort of complementary job duties, and that's pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you brought up the Deflategate course, which of, of course was going to come up. And uh, we don't have to spend too much time on it because I know you've done plenty of other interviews and I've seen things. And I remember watching the segment of Katie Nolan's show when she came and sat in on a <laughs> class and interviewed you afterwards. But uh, for those listening to this who are unfamiliar, could you just uh, share the story of how that came about? First, I mean, why you thought that was a good idea and, and sort of where the idea came from. And then just walk me through the process of how this came to be that New Hampshire actually offered a class in their law school simply on the topic of Deflategate. Sure. So it's it's an undergraduate course. And the reason why it's an undergraduate course is because uh, very basically our law school used to be called Franklin Pierce Law School. We were an independent law school and we were we merged with the University of New Hampshire. And after the merger, our, our campuses are about 45 minutes apart. So one way of getting our communities closer would be to have a law professor teach an undergraduate course. And that would also hopefully encourage undergraduate students to think more about law school as an option. So uh, I was picked to be the the first professor from the law school to teach an undergraduate course. And the the idea behind doing a class on Deflategate is because the course is part of UNH's discovery program, which basically offers – really unique courses designed for a broad spectrum of students. And our associate dean, which is kind of like the vice dean, Margaret McCabe, she said, well, look, these classes that they offer are all kind of unique. And this was in February. This is within a couple weeks of the Deflategate game. She said, why don't you teach a course on Deflategate? And I said, you know, I go, I don't know if the story is going to last that long. Could I really do a course? And, you know, of course, she was totally right. And I and she said, well, you can call it Deflategate, but it can be more of a sports law, sports journalism class, maybe through the vehicle of Deflategate. So that was really the origin of it was to teach a law school type of class at an undergraduate level. And the course I've now taught it I'm teaching for the second time now. I also did an online version 
It's called Deflategate, but in truth, probably only 30% of the class is on Deflategate. Uh, most of the class is really about the relevant areas of law. So, for instance, we do a lot on arbitration law. We do a lot on labor law. We do a lot on antitrust law, contract law. We also do other big sports controversies, including you mentioned Ryan Lochte. Uh, Swimgate is part of the course. We, we also do the Ed O'Bannon case, uh, the various criminal issues, the Aaron Hernandez trial. For instance, I covered that for SI. So it's a vehicle to teach sports law, sports journalism to undergraduates. But a good portion of the course is on Deflategate. And, and the class got a lot of attention last year when this professor at MIT named John Leonard. John Leonard is a guy who's an expert on robotics and automated cars, but he was fascinated by Deflategate, and he's a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan. He told me, he goes, I hate the Patriots. I, I wish they did it, but the NFL science doesn't make any sense, he told me. I said, well, why don't you come on up and do a presentation? He came up, he did a 157 PowerPoint presentation. Uh, the Boston Globe was covering that class, and you mentioned Katie Nolan. We had media in every class, basically, so it was really cool. I mean, frankly, it's great for the school to get you know, that kind of attention, and the students thought it was interesting. And, and the classes, a lot of work. I mean, they said they learned a lot through the different areas of law, the different areas of journalism, science. So that's how the class came into be. I'm teaching it now for the second time. Uh, you know, whether I'll do it again in the future, I'm, I'm still thinking that through. Obviously, Deflategate as a story is, is kind of died out, uh, probably mercifully. I think people are, have had their dosage of Deflategate. But it's still a really good teaching vehicle because there's so much there. I mean, just the arbitration rights, labor rights, employee-employer relationship, a lot of stuff that can be used generally. So it's a very useful class. It doesn't sound like it would be useful, but it's actually really useful because students end up in these situations. And how many students took that class with you? Last year, we had about 75, and this year, we're about 55. Okay. So that's uh, also, I'm guessing that's a one-day week. Is that like a semester course? Like, I'm just curious how... I know it's it's a ton of information in so many different areas, but like if you could give me a sense of how many class periods or how long this takes to to get yeah. through the course. So it's a full it's a fall semester course. I think it's like sixteen weeks. I think it's about sixteen weeks, and it's a three hour class once a week. Mm -hmm. So your name has been uh, attached to the Deflategate story a lot. I think partly because of this class. Partly because of the work you did covering it. Partly because you got some shout-outs from uh, from Bill Simmons, who who appreciated your uh, your work on it. Uh, where do you think this ranks for you as far as the most interesting things that you've covered? Is this uh, really that interesting? Like, I I know it's it's interesting. You just talked about all the reasons it's interesting, but does that make it like a top three story or a number one when you think about the most interesting things that you've covered? I mean, I bitch, I think it was interesting. I don't know how important it is. You know, I think there are other stories that I've covered that were more important for various reasons. I mean, the, I mentioned the Ed O'Bannon case. I mean, that case is really important because it affects thousands of college athletes and universities. And there are all sorts of issues of fairness and race that are really important to that story. On It's, it's not about air pressure in a football. It's about, you could argue, something more meaningful. Uh, the Aaron Hernandez murder trial, uh, you know, occasionally being in the courtroom, seeing sitting behind his mother, who sat eight feet from Odin Lloyd's mother. I mean, that – and you have the two sisters that really don't like each other, Aaron Hernandez's fiance 
and Odin Lloyd's ex-girlfriend, their sisters, and one killed the the boyfriend of the other. I mean, it's it's serious stuff. So I, I think Deflategate is up there in terms of certainly in terms of public interest. It's this sort of bizarre story that that had so many interesting things in play with with Brady, with the Patriots, with Roger Goodell. I mean, it was almost more like a movie than a story because it had a set of characters that were compelling. Even if the underlying topic of were the footballs properly inflated and if they weren't, why? You know, if somebody were to describe Deflategate to you before it happened, you'd probably say, well, that that's really not that important, right? It just sounds like kind of a, a B-level story. So, it, But it did take off and it became important because of all sorts of problems that the NFL – I think to a large extent were self-inflicted mistakes by the NFL and uh, they opened themselves up to a nation of Patriots fans that were, were looking for any kind of missteps. So, uh, you know, I guess to answer your question, it, it is in the top three among most interesting, whether it's the most important. I mean, there are other stories that I've written about title nine. Uh, I've, I've written about other topics that, that implicate race and fairness and equity I mean, I'd like to think those are more important stories because of what they're about, their essence. But in terms of what people were most interested in, I'd have to say uh, Deflategate is at the top. Yeah, that sounds like a totally uh, fair distinction between interesting and important. And it also, I imagine for you working on that, it's almost like a nice reprieve, you know, doing heavier topics, writing about murder trials and you know, domestic violence and topics like that. It, it, I'm sure it's nice to, you know, do something a little bit lighter and, and talk about Deflategate and uh, some of those stories that aren't on uh, such heavy and, and, you know, important, uh, I guess, topics. So, yeah, uh, you, you have, let me hit on that. I mean, you, the Deflategate story, so it was big uh, in January, and then the Aaron Hernandez trial came and I covered that. I mean, the Hernandez trial was, was physically, emotionally draining. I mean, this yeah. was... Right. This is serious. A murder. I mean, it, it does, no matter how it ends, it doesn't end well. Right. No matter what the verdict is, there, there's sadness that permeates through it. So and, and domestic violence. I mean, the Ray Rice story, uh, most recently, Josh Brown, just these are really serious, sad, fundamentally sad stories that are more important. So you're right in the sense that Deflategate, you know, at the end of the day, the Tom Brady being suspended four games is not that big of a deal, right, in the grand scheme of things. It's, it, it just isn't that significant, uh, whereas you take someone who loses a life, someone who has been the victim of abuse. Uh, the, the Jerry Sandusky story, I mean, that was a big story for me. Um, much harder to cover that because of the fact that children were sexually molested by just a, just a monster, really. So, yeah, I mean, those stories certainly were more important. And um, in a way, Deflategate, was a relief because it at the end of the day it's 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 about a bunch of footballs and and a commissioner going after a team and a quarterback and and a quarterback missing games and have lost a first round pick it just in the grand scheme of things is not you know life goes on right um so i i also want to ask you and and you had uh touched on this a little bit at the start but uh the fact that the the whole field of uh journalism around the whole sports law industry is growing and there are so many more opportunities and I'm just curious your thoughts on the whole field and especially in your position where you're seeing young lawyers and, and teaching them and, and working with them and, I, you know, prospective lawyers. 
uh, future lawyers, I guess. Um, you know, do you see a lot of people and, and hear from a lot of people who are going to law school sort of specifically to cover sports law? Like how, you know, is, is this kind of a new thing where, uh, you know, I think maybe back in the day people went to law school to be practicing attorneys and maybe now some people are using a law degree because they're interested in sports law media because it's blowing up. I think we're seeing that a lot with sports business too, where you know some people are going to business school with the plan of you know being a sports business reporter and things like that. Is that something that you're seeing where there are just so many more opportunities and and outlets that are dedicating resources and staff to covering these sports law stories? Is that kind of a growing trend that you've seen? I mean, I think I think that is there's certainly something there. I always tell students that. You know, if you go to law school, you're probably not going to get hired by a major publication unless you practice. I mean, I practiced about four years, so I had the the sort of credibility of you know, doing the Claret case, for instance, but other cases that are not notable. But you know, I did a software case that you know never made headlines, but it was actually a lot of work. Um, so I always tell students. Sports law is a field that is usually accessible after you you've kind of proven yourself as a lawyer. And, um, you know, I, I do see sometimes to some extent, uh, you know, young, maybe even law students or brand new lawyers, very opinionated, um, maybe making opinions too fast. And, uh, you know, and then I'll have an, an experienced lawyer tell me, oh, why did that person say that? So I, I do caution students a little bit. You know, make sure you, you've, you've done the actual work before rushing into any kind of commentary position, uh, particularly when it's linked up with some profession, whether it be law, medicine, business. And in terms of sports law as a field, I always tell students, look, the, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Mets and the uh, Chicago Blackhawks are not going to hire you at a law school. The NFL is not going to hire you at a law school. You can be first in your class. They want seasoned lawyers, understandably, right? If you're if you're the lawyer for the Los Angeles Lakers, you have to show that you've already done some type of work, that you have expertise. So I always tell students the right path into sports law is not to be thinking, I'm going to go to the NFL right out of law school. It's I'm going to go to a law firm that does work with the NFL. Uh, if, however, somebody wants to immediately go into sports law, the, the path that's doable is the college sports level where universities, because of all the NCAA litigation, are hiring lawyers to do compliance positions because compliance is largely applying rules and laws to different fact patterns. So lawyers tend to be very good at it. And I have had students that have gone into compliance positions and they're working their way up, doing very well. Uh, They'll probably become athletic directors one day. And if they do, I hope they donate money to uh, their alma maters because we'll need it. But uh, but, yeah, it's important that I, I think any any law professor who teaches sports law or really any field is up front with students and tells them and tell and tells them here are the plausible jobs at a law school. Here are the jobs immediately at a law school that you can get. Here are those within five years. Maybe here are those within 10 years. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I'm trying to think if I had any other uh, questions that I wanted to ask you. I, I guess one more just about sort of. Uh, the mechanics, and I think I meant to bring this up a little bit earlier, but just uh, some of the the stories that you cover from afar when uh, either you can't make it to the 
courtroom because there are just, you know, too many things going on or it's farther away or it's a little bit lower priority. But some of the work that you do, uh, I guess I'm, I'm curious just how you actually get it done. Like, are you reading some of the documents or are you relying on sources who are there? Are you find, getting your hands on the filing so that you can read some of these legal documents? Like, if you're trying to form an opinion on uh, – or not form an opinion, but you know, write a piece on a trial that's ongoing and you're not there and you decide uh, with your editor at SI that you're going to write an update on how things are going and you know, what today's decision means, you know, how are you doing this and, and what are you reading and how are you getting your hands on stuff so that you can actually put that together? So if it's a federal case, it's a lot easier because of PACER. PACER is a website that pretty quickly puts online any kind of federal filing in a case. So if it's a, if it's a federal case, it's always a lot more accessible. If it's a state case, it depends on what state it's in. So sometimes it's a little more difficult. But what I honestly do is I, I talk to the lawyers in the cases. I mean, they, the lawyers are the most accessible in terms of being able to provide documentation. Uh, they're able to send me the brief. They're able to send me what they think are important insights that I may or may not agree with. But uh, I think the key in covering any kind of sports law controversy is reaching out to the attorneys, making sure that that they know that you're covering it. And they're often very helpful in terms of providing documentation um, with the caveat that they're obviously advocates and they're going to handpick maybe what they share, maybe what they say. But uh, I always try to, as a courtesy at a minimum, to reach out to the lawyers and Sometimes they're responsive. Sometimes they never return my emails or calls, but that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't take it personally. But they're really the, the the key persons in covering. Like you said, if there's a trial going on in uh, St. Louis and I can't get out there because of other work, uh, I'm going to need maybe the court clerk, maybe uh, the attorneys, people that can provide documentation. If it's a federal case, then I can probably just do it through Pacer. So all of those are sort of steps that I've developed over the years that that make not being there less of a challenge. That's interesting because I'm just thinking about me and I, I do less uh, reporting, but I was, I'm just imagining if I was in a position where they said, OK, Mitch, can you put something together on this on this case? I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, so, uh, I mean, obviously, it's not surprising that you have a system down. Um, but, yeah, I also I wouldn't have thought and maybe this is just me not knowing as much about how it works. I, I, I wouldn't have thought you'd be communicating directly with the lawyers. I guess I imagine them like football coaches where they're just so consumed in their job and busy with the trial that they wouldn't uh, take the time to respond to a reporter with a direct question. So that's interesting to know that that so, actually happens. Yeah, sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Some of them are great. I mean, so honestly, some of them are. Uh, so, look, some of them want to be quoted. I mean, you know, for a lawyer, it's hard to get attention. It's hard to get notice. I mean, you see lawyers going on billboards, right? I mean, this is it's a it's a very competitive industry. So um, some of them view this as an opportunity to make a name for themselves. Um, so it, it just depends. But but some lawyers are, uh, you know, they'll never return my calls or emails. And, you know, hey, so, so reporters have to deal with that. That's life. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I have one last question, and I promise you, you were not expecting this one, and I don't know if you'll be prepared for it or not, but uh, the last one before I let you get out of here. I went to Lehigh, and this coming Saturday, uh, this happened after we had planned this. Uh, it was uh, matched up that my alma mater, Lehigh, plays against New Hampshire this Saturday in the FCS playoffs 
which is uh, what other people may know as one double A in the first round. There are 24 teams. Do you have a pick in this game, which is very meaningful to me, Lehigh against New Hampshire in football this weekend? I've got to say New Hampshire is going to win. That is a killer. I don't uh, I don't have much hate. For the New Hampshire program, they uh, the the where Chip Kelly uh, first uh, came about and became a good coach, but uh, definitely pulling for Lehigh. I think it would be an upset. The game's in New Hampshire, so Lehigh is going to be the underdog. But we will be rooting against each other this weekend, and uh, and hopefully by the time people listen to this, uh, Lehigh may have already won. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but either way, whatever happens on Saturday, uh, thanks for coming on because this is this is fun. I learned a lot just from talking to you, uh, just about how you do your job and uh and your career and it was really interesting and i appreciate you taking some time to come on and do this podcast mitch thanks for having me on i really appreciate it sure thing so you are on twitter at mccann sports law and that's uh m-c-c-a-n-n sports law and people can also find your work all over sports illustrated and si.com uh is there anywhere else people should look if they want to find anything of yours nah that's good enough Those right spots. there you'll you find it. everything there all right. Well, uh, the next time there's a next time there's a big story or somebody gets arrested, you'll be all <laughs> over it, and, and people can read. It's you know most uh, athletes or or sports figures, uh, you know, I think would be happy to have somebody at Sports Illustrated write about them. In most cases, you're one of the few people who maybe they wouldn't want you uh, no, poking around I asking only questions. Appear, I'm like the Grim Reaper. I, I only appear in bad times. <laughs> yeah. No, you never want me covering you. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? Do you have any? Uh, temptation to write i mean maybe not like a basketball game story but do you ever think like man it would be fun to just do like a straight profile of somebody or some kind of non-sports law piece for si i would i mean i love basketball i mean and football too so i mean to want to do an nba player i think that would be a lot of fun maybe maybe someday i'll have a chance to do that that would be i'm somebody that i'll just watch any nba game that's on tv i just really enjoy watching NBA basketball and really NFL football too. So just as someone who follows the game, it would be fun to, to at some point branch out, but you know, there's enough legal issues going on that keep me, keep me busy. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to run out of, of material, but uh, I have no idea if any of our editors or bosses are listening to this, but if they are, maybe uh, you'll, you'll have an assignment pop up in your inbox soon uh, from Dollinger or, uh, or Melissa with uh, an NBA or an NFL story. But uh <laughs> Thanks again to you, and thanks to everybody who listened. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitch Goldich, M-I-T-C-H-G-O-L-D-I-C-H. And you can also subscribe to the podcast, which is very easy to do in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. I've got some fun previous episodes, including Dan Hicks, who called the swimming for NBC during the Olympics. Uh, Jason Stark, a baseball writer I'm a big fan of. Jeff Perlman, I mentioned at the start. We talked all about his Brett Favre book back when it was uh, before it came out. Now the book is out. You can listen to a whole interview that he and I did about how he came up with the idea and started the reporting. So if you subscribe and you enjoy it, please go uh, give it a rating and a review on iTunes, which helps more people discover the podcast. And I guess lastly, in all of my uh, shameless plugs here, uh, in addition to Twitter, I have a Facebook page where I post all my podcast episodes and everything that I write for SI.com. And uh, that's about it. So thanks. Uh, Thanks again to Michael McCann and everybody else who listened. And I'll talk to you again soon.